Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. As always, my name is Joshua Thanos and I'm your host today. I have a very special guest, uh, a, uh, a fellow watch collector, but also a uh, an owner of a brand, a CEO and owner of a brand uh, called uh, Fears Watches, and this is Nicholas Bowman Scargill. Hey, Nicholas, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm keeping well. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you uh, agreeing to uh, to stay up late to jump on a uh, a call with me. Uh, we're I guess we're across the pond, as some people like to say. And uh, this would be my first international guest for a podcast, so that's exciting. Look at that. I'm honored. That's wonderful. That's great. Yeah, you would have been worth, my worth second. staying up for. <laughs> yeah, you would have been my second. Um, but uh, David from uh, from Garrick, I had to reschedule because I I had a little bit of an illness last week. It, it, I might sound a little bit weird today because I have a little bit of a nasal infection, but last week I I mean I was unrecognizable and it was it would have just been a terrible experience for everybody. So so you bumped him. I'm rescheduling him for next week. You're the first. And uh and I think I'm excited for this. So um before we get started though, uh, as always, we do a wristomary or wristomary, a customary wrist check. <laughs> it's mangled that one. Um so why don't we start with you? What you have on your wrist? I have a guess as to what it is. Um, but why don't you tell me what you uh, tell me and the listeners what you have on your wrist, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, so yeah, what I'm wearing today is a watch that I wear probably several times a week. It's a Fears watch, but it's one of my personal Fears watches. Uh, it's a Fears Redcliffe. Um, so it was one of the first watches we ever made in a round 38 millimeter case, quartz movement. But the reason I love this watch and wear it so much, and in particular wearing it today, is this is watch number one serial number number one and i bought this watch for myself with no discount because fears famously never does any discount for anyone not even the ceo but i wear it because this was the accumulation of a lot of hard work selling a lot of my personal watch collection leaving a stable job at rolex and diving into restarting my family's brand so this watch is yeah it's very very important to me fantastic i think i saw you post that on uh i think it was instagram today Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big one for putting, uh, what I'm wearing on, uh, on my Instagram. And actually I often get quite a lot of flack from other British watch company CEOs. Cause I will happily post the other watches I own, you know, Garrick's Cradors, you know, I'll put them up there because if you, you like a watch, you don't have to always wear your own brand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's n not an issue I have since I don't own my own brand. Maybe one day I do have some some ideas and some ambitions, but don't I don't know if I have uh, the stomach to to run a watch brand. <laughs> but um, so today I'm wearing uh, a brand that I did not create or that I, that I don't own. Um, but it is a cool watch in my opinion. So it's a uh, a vintage Hoyer Montreal, uh, which is a vintage Hoyer chronograph. Um, it's massive. It is actually I have my calipers here. So let's see what the what the size. So this is a 43 millimeter across. And because it has no lugs, let's see what the, by 50 millimeters on the wrist, um, it's uh, my type of vintage watch. Um, I've done, I did an episode uh, of the podcast a few weeks ago talking about vintage and how vintage Rolex is tough, especially nowadays because they've become so val uh, valuable and, you know, you have to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in order to get you know, a vintage uh, Rolex sport watch. And then there's so much incentive kind of for fuckery with things like that. So it's it's hard to, to decide what to spend your money on. So I stick with vintage Tudor. I like a lot vintage Hoyer. I've had 
in the last probably four years, I probably had 20 or 30 vintage wares, um, different chronographs, different cool dials and whatnot. And, you know, you're spending less than, you know, at this point, they've gone up a bit. You know, I used to buy them for around three. Now they're around five to six. But still, you're not, you're not, you know, <laughs> you're not spending, a, 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 you're not buying a car for your wrist when it comes to things like this. And they're easy to move. So um, I believe this one is the Caliber 12 from Hoyer, which is uh, a pretty basic workhorse movement. If, I think I read it was a, it's a Salita movement with a deposit uh, module on top. So, you know, nothing crazy, automatic. Um, again, big, thick, huge watch. Um, I put it on a, uh, like a sailcloth strap and it's, it's fun. It'll probably be in the, in the uh, collection for, you know, a few months to a year and then I'll trade it on out again towards something else that's funky and vintage. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a fun watch. You know, it's certainly older than I am, which is, uh, which is fun. I, I think that's always cool. When, uh, you know, I'm buying watches that work better than I do that are older than I am. <laughs> um, so, uh, but maybe, maybe that's how we'll start. So, uh, we finished the wrist check. So one thing that I thought was, uh, was striking about you is, is your age, right? So, you know, I'm 35 years old. You are much younger than me at 34 years old, but you know, uh, in, in this industry, um, you don't see people our age, um, you know, uh, at, at top positions, right? So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I guess, a senior salesperson for Watchbox, which is now the largest watch selling operation on the planet at this point. Um, you know, and uh, but all of our executives are are well older than I am and have a lot of experience and whatnot. But and you know, so you are essentially what? What is your title for Fears? So my official title is Fourth Managing Director. Okay, Fourth Managing and it's, Director. It's, it sounds a little unusual, but the reason it's that is so. What I've always do with Fears because it's Britain's oldest watch company. Right. Because you're the oldest, you don't want to really flaunt it about. You don't need to, right? You know, we, we could slap our old 1846 founding date all over everything, but you don't need to. Um, just like Cartier, who were founded the year after Fears, they don't slap their date on things. It's always, you know, if, if, you'd, if you've got it, you don't need to flaunt it. But what I do ensure we do is lots of subtle hints, you know, a bit more British, a bit more understated. And so mm -hmm. I'm the fourth fear family member to be managing director of the company. And so that's why I put fourth in little brackets, managing director. And it confuses the hell out of everyone. They're like, what? But I want to meet the first, I want to meet the top guy. And I'm like, no, 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 that, that, that is actually me. Like, um, yeah, the first guy, he, you know, he died over 150 years ago. Um, you can't get in touch with him now. No, no. Without a Ouija board. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, so my, my, my title is uh, fourth managing director. Okay. Fantastic. So, you know, uh, and I would say that in terms of the watch industry, you, it's possible you're the youngest managing director of a of a watch brand at this point. So I know of a couple who are a little younger, but they've only started in the last like year or two. And sure. I think it's, you know, you're saying about the age thing. And in fact, I'm, so I'm 35 next week. So you know, oh, I'm only birthday. just behind you. But um, yeah, yeah. it's... Uh, it's a weird thing, actually, because, you know, if we go back five and a bit years ago, when I, I, I've been a, at Rolex for five years as an apprentice watchmaker. And then when I left, I suddenly found myself like going and meeting with suppliers around Europe. And you would walk in, you know, to say a case manufacturer in Germany or a movement manufacturer in Switzerland. And I was by often two decades, the youngest person in the room. And yet 
how do you convey to them like I'm the client? And also when you bear in mind, especially with European manufacturers, just walking in with the checkbook doesn't gain any respect. They don't automatically go, oh yes, you know, we'll bow down to you. And nor nor should they. You know, it's a working relationship. They they're old companies as well. And so it's been quite weird the last five years because being that sort of the youngest guy in the room, having to prove to people like, actually, I do have a vague idea of what I'm doing. You know, this is my first business. I've, I've, I know it probably will be my only business I ever set up and run. I'm, I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I don't think I've got multiple businesses in me. Um, but yeah, you know, when I, when I restarted Fears, I was still just 29. Um, which is why if you see, uh, any press photos of any of our watches that have a date complication, the date is always set to 29. And the reason is twofold. One, because I was 29 when I restarted my family's business. And then the other one is because the first day I worked full time for fears was the leap year in 2016, the 29th of February. Oh, wow. And that's kind of how my brain works. I'm just, it's, it's, it's combining basically running a watch company means that I can just be a total geek every single day and just really enjoy the this tiny little things that don't really matter, but they matter to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's weird running a business where you know, you know, we we have a very broad um, owner range. You know, I think our youngest owner is a teenager right through to someone in their nineties. But you know, when when you're you know sitting with media, when you're sitting with you know um, other watch collectors, you know, and and also meeting with other watch brand owners, it's strange when you realise like, oh, you know. But then at the same time, I think I think there can be some advantages to it. Um, but then you know you you, you were mentioning uh, David Brailsford from Garrick, so. Um, yeah, you know, I, I probably was on the phone to him in total today for about an hour and a half. You know, last week I went out for dinner with him. Um, I would say he's one of my closest personal friends now. Um, he's someone I met right at the beginning, like a few weeks before I restarted and officially relaunched Fears. I met him and he's always been just such a, a huge support, so helpful, so, you know, willing to impart advice. And yeah, I mean, you've probably spoken with him. He is a fab guy and, you know, Garrick is an amazing brand. And in fact, I, I'm lucky to own a piece unique that I bought and commissioned from from his company. Um, but that's, it's kind of that thing where I'll be chatting away with him and then we'll suddenly forget that, you know, and he'll, he'll, he'll be sending me some rude text messages when he listens to this. But, you know, <laughs> he and I aren't the same age, you know, no. <laughs> and I, I, that, but at the same time, you don't notice that when you're in the room together, when you're chatting, you're just on, on the level. Um, so yeah, it's in, in ways it's noticeable in other ways it isn't. Sure. Well, he's, he is a special guy in this industry. I'd say too, I'm looking forward to doing my podcast because the first, the first conversation I had with him, it was nearly two hours and I was the one I'm like, Hey, listen, I, I want to keep talking to you, but I got to go here. You know, and he's, he wants to talk about everything watches and everything else and, and, uh, is, is an open book when it comes to that. So, um, well, so I, I've heard the story on a many different interviews. So to make this standalone, we can make it quick. Right. So, but we can talk about kind of how, uh, how fears came to be, how you found out about the brand existing in your, in your you know family lineage. Um, and then after that, I, I really want to talk about, you know, the mechanics of, of once you decided um, 
that this is this is what you're going to do. What was the first step? You know, because people have ideas. You know, you say you you don't consider yourself an entrepreneur. You definitely are an entrepreneur, right? Like starting a business that had that had been dormant for I think forty years, I think thirty or forty years. You know, basically restarting it from scratch in a new world that we're that we're living in. I mean, that's you you are running a startup right now, in my opinion, at least. So, um, but why don't you? Give a quick rundown. You don't have to go into detail. If anybody wants to find out, listen. I mean, you you've repeated it many times, um, but yeah. Once you start from there, and, and and let's hear it. So, yeah, it is. It's quite a strange story, and it's it's also strange because often when you say to me, "Oh, you know, I own and run Britain's oldest watch company," they naturally assume that I've just inherited it. You know, they assume I'm probably some rich kid who just inherited, you know, his father's business, and you know, and and. You know, I, I'm not wanting to cast any shade on uh, in the watch industry any you know family uh, family owned businesses where that does occur because you know I think I think that's a great thing. But um, yeah, for me, it was fears had disappeared for forty well thirty nine years. There was no fears watch company, and then I brought it back. Um, okay, so we'll go briefly back without going too much into my LinkedIn. I did a degree in economics. Um, because when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with, sounds very geeky. I was obsessed with the economy, learning about economics. It, it's fascinating supply and demand, how, how things happen. The theory of economics is wonderful. And then at university studying it, I did an internship with Deutsche Bank. I was going to become an investment banker. Um, and as you know, because you and I are the same age, graduating in 2008 with an economics degree, hoping to work in the financial sector was absolutely no go within months. Deutsche turned around and said, yeah, sorry, we're not going to give you that job. You're, you're not quite good enough. Um, and so I scrambled around for a new job, just as the whole financial world, everything I'd been sort of grooming myself for just blew up in my face. And also, you know, right, you know, if we, we, we talked briefly earlier about the start of the pandemic. You know, it's that period where suddenly there's no precedent. People don't know how to react. Well, in 2008, people didn't know what was going on, you know. Anyway, I, I found my feet um, sort of in public relations and I worked for a consumer PR company doing the PR for people like British Airways, Hewlett Packard, and it was great fun, you know, doing launches and photo shoots, but I'm quite dyslexic. And so writing press releases, the emails, the pitch decks, yeah, that's, that's, that's not me. That, I'm not great at that. So after I'd been there about three years, I thought, right, I need to change career let's just go blank sheet of paper. Let's pretend I'm a seven-year-old. When you say to a kid, like, what do you want to be when you're older? It's very rarely going to be like, you know, a project manager, you know, it's going to be something like fireman, you know, I want to, I want to be a, an airline pilot, something like that. Anyway, I came down to realizing I have two big passions in life and I have done since I was about 12, 13 years old. One of them is trains. So the railways, and one of them is watches. And so I started researching, what if I was to become a watchmaker or a train driver or a train engineer, as I think they're called in the US, you know, what if I was to become yeah. one or the other, you know, and, and I researched the careers and, and I, in the end, I decided, actually, I liked the sound of watchmaking and also suddenly realized that being a watchmaker was in high demand. So Super, I put yeah. together my CV a two-page covering letter explaining why I thought going from public relations with an economics degree into watchmaking was a natural career progression, even though it clearly <laughs> isn't. Um, and I sent it off to all the big watch brands in the UK. So, you know, 
Rolex, Amiga, Cartier, Breitling, anyone who has a workshop in the UK, and basically said, hey, I would love to come as an apprentice. And Rolex were the, the foolish ones. They took me on. After seven months of practical assessments, five interviews, in the end, I kind of ground them down, I think, because they were just like, who is this person? Like, you know, anyway, I I started as an apprentice and, and I was there for five years. And, you know, this could be a whole separate podcast episode talking about that because working inside Rolex, not in, you know, upstairs in marketing or sales, but actually working in the workshop, the appreciation you get is, I mean, I, I just have so much admiration for Rolex. Um, and for reasons we'll come on to, uh, not linked to, to anything about the watches. I n- sadly no longer own any Rolexes, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, I admire the watches. Do I admire the brand? Maybe, but I love the watches. I think, you know, hands down, superb quality. Um, but while I'm there, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm in my mid twenties. This is a great job, but I'm looking around and I realize my job won't really change for the next 40 years until I retire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I just managed to be millennials. You know, we've got that, like, you know, that little bit of an itch of wanting to do more. On the cusp. Yeah, yeah. And everyone jokes about it, but I think part of graduating in 2008 into a world that blew up meant that I kind of was like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do just this for the rest of my life. Stability is not that important to me because I didn't have it at any point in my my career so far. So actually, if you remove that and you go, I'm in my, my mid-20s, um, recently married to, to a, a loving, supporting husband, you know, we, we don't have many ties. What if I was to kind of throw away stability and, and do my own thing? Anyway, I go home to my parents one weekend and I say to them like, oh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe another career change. I know, but, you know, maybe change and, and, and do my own thing. But I don't know what I'll do. And genuinely, I didn't know what I would do. And this is why I don't self-identify as an entrepreneur was I didn't spot a gap in the market and go, oh, I can create this product or service. And so I say this to my parents and my mum, as she's serving up the roast dinner, you know, the, the roast potatoes. She, roast potatoes. Oh, <laughs> those wonderful roast potatoes. I'll remember them well because she she jokingly says to me, oh, why don't you restart the family watch company? And I mean, people talk about a eureka moment. Well, this wasn't a eureka moment. This was like seeing electricity for the first time, you know. Great. It record stops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, struck, struck by lightning, you know. Yeah. Um, all the neon signs pointing big arrows at you. Um, and I sort of, yeah, of course, I'm going, what, what, what company? And what I quickly realized over the course of that dinner was obviously when I started applying for watch to become an apprentice watchmaker, my mum had said to me, like, oh, it must be in the blood. Like your great grandfather and his father were both watchmakers. But if you get told, oh, so and so was a watchmaker, you assume they were like, maybe one man in a dusty old workshop tinkering away repairing the odd the odd watch what she didn't point out was that these guys were watchmakers by training but they were then managing directors of the west of england's largest watchmaker which employed 100 watchmakers in bristol exported to 95 countries around the world was watchmaker to the admiralty you know was a huge organization that ran you know for a well, it was over 130 years before it closed. And you're thinking, mum, why didn't you think of mentioning that to me before? And of course, like like all mums, she was like, 
well, I didn't think it was that important. And, you know, oh, let me have a think. We might have some old paperwork. So she, she goes off, finds an old photo album and found, found this advert, which was the centenary collection in 1946 of the watches they created to celebrate first hundred years of fears being in existence one year after the Second World War. And there are all these beautiful watches, all with fears on the dial. And you just go, right, you know what? I know what I need to do. And I think I had about 20 minutes of feeling this like elation of, I know what I'm going to do. And then suddenly you go, oh, heck, I have absolutely no idea how to set up a company, a business, a watch company. Like being a watchmaker is so different from running a watch company. And I think that's one of the biggest things people kind of find as a surprise. They're like, oh, you know, you know, it must be said, it's like, no, 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 running, running a watch company is, and you know, you joke about it, but I'll be honest, if I knew today, sorry, if I knew back then what I know today about everything that's taken place in the last five and a half years, I'm not sure if I would have undertaken it. I don't know if I would have done it. I think actually I was very lucky to be youngish, foolish, and to have just gone and, and to be naive. And sometimes you think, actually, if it wasn't for that naivety, being a bit wet behind the ears, I, I absolutely wouldn't have done it because I would have realized I had I didn't have enough money because I self-funded the, the, the business. Um, I didn't have anywhere near the, 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 you know, the skill of setting up and creating this. I didn't have any of the knowledge. I would have just been scared off. I wouldn't have done it. So it's it all kind of happened for a reason it feels like and but that that roast dinner you think what if i had just not said to my parents that what if i'd woken up with a cold that morning and not gone to see them what if you know there's there's a lot of these uh what ifs you know a bit like the film sure. sliding doors you know like if you don't get onto the train what how does your life change right. but uh yeah that that's how it changes over dinner with your parents yeah yeah that's that's wild so I mean, so I have a lot of questions here, right? So, uh, well, um, so people who know me, I I work for Watchbox. I have now for almost a decade, um, but I'm also I'm a very I'm very itchy when it comes to uh, new ideas and whatnot. I've been uh, I guess an entrepreneur since I was in my early 20s. So we have a few other businesses. So, I, and I feel the same way. You know, like it's better that you don't know what you're what you're in for going into it because you know, almost every business that I have started and or sold, um, it, it, yeah, there's massive challenges that some days you look at it, you're like, "Ah, this is not worth it, you know, but it, uh, you know, you just keep chugging along, but it's, and it sounds like that there is a theme here. Um, you mentioned that in order to get your position at Rolex, it took you seven months and you felt like you grinded them down. Right. So that perseverance is, in in almost every entrepreneur that I've I've dealt with or I've spoken to about their kind of story, having that perseverance and just that drive and 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 not giving up is almost uh, you know a common thread throughout all those. So you know there you go. So I mean again, you don't call yourself an entrepreneur, but I think that you were showing your uh, entrepreneurial spirit well before fears came into into play. But I think actually you've, you've touched on something very interesting. It's, it's about part of the the attitude is kind of going, here's a challenge or or willing to step into the unknown. And so I mentioned in the wrist check that I was about the significance of the watch I'm wearing, my blue dialed Redcliffe. And now the reason I'm wearing it today is today 
I've been doing two very important things. One of them is going through lots of resumes, CVs for taking on a new operations person in our business who will be working full-time and managing all the suppliers we work with. Um, and this will be our fourth full-time member of the FEARS team, which you know doesn't sound very many until you get to the 25th of the month payday and then you start realizing how many how many you know mortgages and rents you're, you you are indirectly paying for how many lives people are you know are, are now responsible on you waking up in the morning and and doing okay at running this business so you know that that was very very daunting the but also actually very interesting to this on, on that this was one of the first roles where suddenly the CVs we were getting in, we were getting in a lot of people from within the industry, people who I, I knew and would never have thought they actually wanted to leave these jobs at very well-known brands to come and work for me at Fears. And you're thinking that that for me was like, oh God, this feels very serious and grown up now, you know. But but the other thing was I then spent the rest of the day going through the lease of um, which we're signing in uh, next week on our new thousand square foot headquarters in Bristol. So we're taking fears back to Bristol in this beautiful old 1850s paintworks that's been converted into a multi-story office. Um, very sort of kind of think sort of Brooklyn apartment, you know, exposed brickwork, very mm -hmm. trendy. But we're going to have our head office there, a showroom, a workshop. So we'll be employing watchmakers there. And I'm going through this lease and thinking again, how in five years are we now at a point doing this? Five years ago, I was using a seven-year-old MacBook on a borrowed desk, sat on my landing because I didn't even have a spare room to have as a home office. And there I was running Fears Watch Company. You know, the international headquarters was a desk on some on my landing. And, you know, so at moments like this, I, I've, I always wear this watch because it kind of, part of it is keeping you grounded and reminding you of where, yeah. where, where the business has come from. Mm -hmm. Part of it is also, it's my kind of my, my good lucky token, you know. Um, but, you know, I think the exciting thing, and I, I, by the sounds of it, you have this as well, is when you run a business is, I think if you're ever at a point where you think you know it all and you've done it all, then it's time to get out. Because for me, the exciting thing is, all the challenges and the things I'm having to learn and teach myself today, I wouldn't have dreamt I would be doing five years ago. And yet five years ago, those really easy things like setting up a company, opening an Instagram account, building a website. Nowadays, I look at it and go, oh my goodness, who was that guy five years ago feeling scared and unsure and asking advice? But that that's just growing as, as an entrepreneur, I guess. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, <clears throat> somebody much smarter than me one day told me that, you know, Every dollar you lose making mistakes starting a business is simply just tuition. You know, that's that's all you're doing. You're just paying tuition. I'm going to need to write so, that down and give it to my yeah. accountants. <laughs> yeah, so write this off for me. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, they're, in, in America, they're trying to to uh, they're they're trying to absolve uh, everyone of their school debt. So I don't know if I can get included on that and all the money I've lost in my businesses. And and I will tell you, you know what? Uh, so we have. We have a local business here in Florida. I think we have now, we just hired a, a, quite a few people. So I think we're at 16 employees or so. And it, you know, uh, payroll is daunting because you just you're like, oh, hopefully we can make it because that's our biggest expense. But, you know, it does feel good when, when, you know, you see that, that money go out of the account and you know, okay, well, that's, this is, 
you know, keeping these people afloat. I have 16 people who rely on a business that I'm ultimately in charge of. So I better not make a bad decision. Well, and also, you know, you know, without dwelling too much on the past uh, two years, you know, I don't think anyone could have been prepared for lockdowns, the pandemic, no travel. And I mean, that, that certainly, well, that hit us hard. And actually, I think any watch company who says the first six months of 2020 were, were fine is lying because I, we were all talking to each other every day going, please say it's not just me. Like, have you had a sale in the last month? No. Okay. Neither have I like, you know, but that's all, but at that, that time I'd started growing my team. And so I had people relying on me and going, well, you know, what's happening. And I don't know if you know the, the story about this, about March, 2020. Uh, Go for it. Okay, so we, we you know we go into March 2020. We've had we've had a couple of uh, we've probably had two badish months, and then March it just went off a cliff, you know, to right. basically to zero. And I went on a failed family holiday to Florida, which got cancelled midway across the Atlantic. So I had a few days in Fort Lauderdale on the beach with all the spring breakers spreading the COVIDs, um, and then <laughs> as I'm on the beach, I'm realizing things are getting bad, really bad. And so I'm messaging my accountant going, right, you know, you need to, I'm, I'm going to be landing back in the UK. We need to have a meeting. We need to go through all the numbers, like what's our cash reserves? Where are we exposed? All, all of the typical dramatic business things you have to do from a, a deck chair in, the, in Florida with a, with a mojito in hand. And when I landed in the UK, of course, it was pouring with rain, which was kind of a sign of what was about to happen. And I go straight to the office, meet with the, uh, the accountant, and she basically goes, right, you've got about two and a bit months of cash reserves and then that's it. You run out of money. And I was like, right. Okay. Um, you know, what about cutting things? You know, what are our, like, where's the fat? Where can we cut the fat? And she said, well, okay. The good news is you run your business really lean. You're clearly a Yorkshireman by birth. You know, you, you, you don't have that excess. You don't, you're not excessive. So, you know, good or for that bad thing is there's nothing to cut. Like, you know, so she was like, you know, your biggest cost is payroll. So you, you're going to have to start letting people go. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. It must have been partly the jet lag and also the emotion of everything going on. But I was like, absolutely not. There is no way I'm letting anyone go. You know, this is a family-run business. I'm, you know, a bit like the Thelma and Louise scene where they drive off the cliff. I'm like, damn it all. If, if the business goes bankrupt, but everyone is paid, then, you know, that that's what we'll do, you know. Um and she said, okay, fine. So yeah, you've got about two months. I said, right, I want to uh, pay all of our suppliers today because we've never paid a supplier late. We've always paid them, you know, if anything, a few days early. I want to pay everyone today because they're going to be struggling as well. So we did that. And she goes, right, you're now down to like a month and a half. Like, you know, you're, you're burning through your cash. I said, well, we've got to do the right thing. So I then said, fine, I'll take a hundred percent pay cut, you know, just get rid of my salary straight off the books, you know, um, any direct loan repayment straight, you know, cut them, you know, keep the money in the business. And she goes, okay, right. We're now back up to about three months, maybe. Um, great. Fine. I close my office. I head home. I tell my husband, you know, guess what? I've just you know, reduced our household income by 50% by taking no pay. And he was like, okay, well, as honorable as that seems like, you know, making sure your employees are paid, how are we paying our mortgage? Like, how are we paying our bills? And I was like, right, well, look, I'll find something. Anyway, I couldn't sleep that night. So about one o'clock in the morning, I wake up for the first time in 10 years, I wrote a CV. And then at 6am, I got in the car 
and I went to every single supermarket in my city in Canterbury and handed it in and basically said, look, I'll do anything. You know, I just need a job. So I realized basically hospitals, logistics, and food, they were the only things that were going to matter during the pandemic. Essential business. Right, exactly. You know, and this is before we go into lockdowns and all this, but already you can tell no one is, no discretionary spending. No one's going out for dinner. No one's buying luxury goods and certainly no one's buying watches. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, or so we well, thought. so we thought yeah. there, there, there's a happy yeah. ending to this. So I, uh, right. a few days later, I, I started my first night shift working for Asda supermarket. So Asda at the time was owned by Walmart. And so basically mm. for three months at the start of the pandemic, I would wake up at midnight, get showered, dressed, have breakfast, walk to work. Cause of course my car broke down on the first shift. I would do an eight hour mm. shift stacking shelves, picking online orders, go home, sleep for an hour, wake up, run fears, because we we still had inquiries. We still had after-sales things to do. Uh, go to bed at five in the afternoon with a sleeping pill. And then, you know, and I did that every single Jeez. day. And it meant that I didn't need to take the money out. So for those precious few months, when sales were non-existent, the company kept mm-hmm. going Everyone kept working. We didn't furlough anyone. We kept people going. And there were two things as a result. One of them was um, because I was up at midnight, the only people awake on like Instagram or or WhatsApp were people like my good friend who I've, I know is a friend of yours, Asher, over in California. Okay. Yeah. And true, so yeah. he and I went into the pandemic being, you know, I would say like good acquaintances. We knew each other. Amazing through chatting, video calling, messaging, you know, at that time, because suddenly I was on a Californian time zone, you know, and uh, yeah, you know, we built up a really good friendship as a result of, of those months of doing that, which I'm, I'm always very pleased about, you know, and that friendship's carried oh, through wow. to today. Um, but the other thing was everything changed in May. We started getting the first orders in and because my team had kept working, they were ready to go straight away. There was no winding the company back up. We were just, and then when June came, June right. was our fifth best month we had ever had on the back of. So we did more in June than we had done for the first half of the year. And we ended 2020 growing by 124% over okay. 2019. And so you quit in June? So I quit right at the end of May. Yeah. Yeah. So I, okay. I, I collected my May paycheck and then I, and then I left and it's, it's just been nonstop since then. Um, yeah, I, it's crazy. So for me, 2020 was very much a year of two halves. The first half was just disastrous. And then the second half was so good. And you kind of think no one tells you when you're going to quit your nice stable job and go out there and do it on your own. Just what an emotional wreck you will be. Like every day, I always say to people, you know, when you run a business, every day something doesn't go your way. And I'm not entitled to anything going my way, but, you know, some days not everything goes your way. But over the course of the day, if one extra thing goes in your favor, then it's a good day. And if one less goes, yep. you're, it's a bad day. But the pandemic was just like huge, like, you know, huge changes. And also, you know, we go back to 2016 when I left Rolex, you know, I mentioned fears is self-funded. I have no investors. I've not borrowed any money off anyone. Basically 
my husband and I pulled all our savings. I sold all my watch collection. We always joke that if it wasn't screwed to the wall or the floor, it went on eBay. You know, we sold a lot of possessions. We stopped going on holiday and all of them. So I was looking at fears during the pandemic going, all of that sacrifice, all of our savings, everything is in this. And if it goes, that's it. You know, I, I have, I have, I have no safety net. I have no pension. I have nothing left. Now, being in your thirties, you can, you know, you you can build back, but emotionally, that would have been destroying. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any kids? No, no, we don't. So at, at least we didn't have the the you know that that sort of you know worry. That's an added pressure. Yeah, exactly. And I think actually it is that thing I realize you know because we haven't got kids because we're both sort of workaholics. We've you know, we've been together since university. We've 16 years together. We've always supported oh, wow. each other's careers. And I've been very lucky to have that, to have someone who hasn't told, you know, those first few years running fears, I worked seven days a week. You know, I was doing hundred hour weeks, week after week after week, but you do it because you love it. You want to do it. You know, right. what, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice, but also think about this. Like, what do I do? Not not what's on my to-do list today, because that's very boring and dull. But what, what do I fundamentally do and have done for five years? I create beautiful mechanical objects that nobody, absolutely nobody needs to buy them. Because our phones tell us the time, our laptop tells us whatever. No one needs to buy it, but people desire it. People want to own it. And I think that actually, that was my thing I took away from the pandemic. It was going, you know, if this all disappears, if this does go to zero, I've actually created something that will continue. You know, those watches will continue to be on people's wrists. They'll continue to be worn. Sure. You know, my family's business won't, you know, it, even if it did die a second time, it will keep going. Those, 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 you know, that the knowledge of it will still be there. Sure. Well, it's a great story. And we, I just found out I have something more else in common with you. It'll be 16 years with my wife and I, uh, in November. Amazing. So, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Also college sweethearts. Oh, yeah. I love we, it. We met very early. We've been around for a long time. I hope time. this is going out on Valentine's uh, day. <laughs> uh, it actually, it might, it's, it's funny. It'll be next week. So, um, wow. So that, that was, that's tremendous. So yeah, your, your, your view of the pandemic was probably more dramatic than mine because it was all or nothing for you. Um, seeing it from this side, just the sales side, right? Not, not running an entire watch company, but you know, I remember I was in Philadelphia uh, the day that the NBA shut down, which was like, that's when like, holy crap, this is real. Flew home early. My wife was pregnant at the time. My daughter's now, she was 22 months yesterday. So, um, so she was, she was, she was born March 31st. So it was, it was a scary time for us. And I got home and I said to my wife, Hey, so I might have to find a new job, new industry. Like who the hell is going to buy a watch if the whole world's going to end, right? Um, fast forward to June. <laughs> we, I mean, well, so Watchbox was selling large amounts of our inventory well below our cost. Like that's we were like, all right, what's our game plan? Let's sell out for out of all the all the stuff that we feel like might drop in price. Sell out of it now, you know, build some cash reserves and then figure out what's going to happen. I'd say December 2020 was my best year or best month ever uh, in sales in terms of sales revenue um, and with my history in the company. And, and actually, January 2022 was has now replaced that, which is wild. But um, but yeah, we've seen we've seen a, a, 
a wild boom um, that seems like a lot of companies are are thankfully benefiting from. Um, but so you gave me a few a few tidbits there that I and I have some follow up questions. So you're sitting at your at at the dinner table with your with your family. You find out that there's a watch company that your family owned. So obviously, oh look, you know I'm going to restart the family brand. It's a it's a great idea. But logistically, there's a lot of things there, right? So um, you said the company basically went out of business. So was it, they, they didn't sell, like it wasn't owned by anyone at that point. It literally just luckily, I guess, for you, it dissolved. Is that is that what happened? Very much so. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you the very brief history of the company. If you want the long work version, sure. we do actually have a book published last year for the the anniversary, the 175th anniversary. Um, is that for sale? Yeah, it's for sale on the website. And the... Um, it was published it. by Bristol Books, so elegantly understated, 175 years of the Fears Watch Company. And I was very honored oh, that wow. um, the foreword was written by Roger Smith, which was, which Amazing. for me was just, you know, what, what more could you ask for, you know? And, right. and, but so the brief history is in 1846, a young watchmaker called Edwin Fear, which is why the company is Fears, um, opened a workshop and a showroom in Bristol. And the business ran through, moved on to his son, Amos Daniel Fear, then moved on to his son, Amos Reginald Fear. Now, over that period, we saw things like the First World War, the Spanish flu, the Wall Street crash, the Second World War. And the business ran up till the 70s. Basically, in the 70s, the next generation, the fourth generation, didn't express an interest in continuing it. The third generation retired. And so basically Fears closed its door in 1976. And we're lucky to have in our archive the final catalogue they produced in 1975. And yeah, the door was closed. That was it. And of course, you think in 76, right, the quartz crisis is really beginning to bite. Also, the world's becoming a very international place. So people aren't thinking, oh, I can only buy a watch from my local watch brand everything is is now international swiss watches are in in the market but i'm really grateful in a way that it closed and then the next two generations the fourth and fifth generation did nothing and also no one else mm-hmm. bought it because it meant that when the name right, exactly so when i turn up you know as the sixth generation i i find that i can reincorporate the company no one owns the trademark so i can buy that back and Wow. Also, the weird thing is, and I say this, it's also a blessing. It's a blessing in a way. So heritage is fantastic. You know, great. You know, Fears was founded 175 years ago. But if we had kept going and never stopped, I don't know what position or state the company would be in today. What compromises would have been made over the years? What I got to do was go, right, it's 2016 how, what do I want the company to look like? What do I want it to do? And I thought, right, two things. One, I want to imagine what it creates and and designs are watches that if the company hadn't closed, this is what they would be doing, i.e. they have lots of little design elements and DNA that they've been using for decades before. So that's why if you pick up a modern fears and then you look at something from the archive, you can draw the line. It's a bit like looking at a, a Porsche 911 today. You can see the lineage going back, right? The second thing was I was adamant, and this actually I think comes to a point you made right at the beginning about the difference of being, you know, our generation, my age. 
I was adamant I didn't want Fears to be seen as a heritage watch company. I wanted it to be seen as a British watch company that happened to have an incredible heritage. I wanted that to be the icing on the top. In a way, like, you know, and people will think I'm being very grand here because I'm not trying to compare myself to them. But in the car industry, take Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce, Mm -hmm. everyone knows they've got a great history. Everyone knows they're very old and ask most people, they have no idea what year they were founded. They don't really know about the history of Mr. Rolls and Mr. Royce. You know, it's because the brand, that's all just assumed because it's got Mm -hmm. this incredible history and heritage. And I think that's a very enlightened way. And I think, you know, if if I'm allowed to throw a bit of mud at uh, this wonderful industry that I'm lucky to play play in every day, I really dislike the way that a lot of brands will do two things. One, they'll either have closed and restarted and then just gloss over it. We Mm -hmm. make a big song and dance of saying we closed in 76 and we were reestablished in 2016. You know, embrace it. It's part of your history. So why why hide it? But the other thing is, what does all this history actually mean? It means nothing if you're not making you know, a beautiful, well-made product. Like you, 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 you know, to, I think to run a, a successful watch company and, you know, time will tell whether, you know, I, I managed to do that or not is you've got to have a great product, but you've also got to have, you know, the brand, the story, the history that, you know, sure. you've got to have both parts. If you have too much of one or too much of the other, you can fail. I mean, sadly, there are so many incredible independent watch brands that have died over the years. And it was because they focused on making an amazing watch, which yes, you know, the absolute top collectors, they don't need the story. They don't need the about us page. But if you want to go through the different levels of collections and and um, and watch buyers, you've got to have the other thing. We've got to realize that yes, it's got to be well made. It's got you know you've got to offer value for what you're you're selling. But also, wearing a watch is also about how it makes you feel, and part of that is the name on the dial and what it conjures up. You know, you know, buying a Rolex. I, I worked at Rolex for five years. I met so many people who brought their watch in. People coming in with Daytonas, who are going, oh, I need to get my mm-hmm. watch serviced, or you know, and then you know, I'd say, oh, do you know your your chronographs running? And they're like, oh, sorry, what, what, what do you mean? And, and I was like, oh, well, you see, see these um, pushers, you know, if I unscrew them to, oh, I've never pressed those. Oh, I don't, what does it do? And, and you'd explain to people in, you know, this is what your watch does. And they'd be blown away. And this happened more often than not. And then you realize people just, oh, I just love it. And it's, a, you know what? I've always wanted to own a Rolex. And so when I sold my business, got married, you know, marked an occasion, I had to buy a Rolex. And that really showed me, yeah, you know, brand is important. Now Rolex has succeeded because it's also got the product to back it up. You've got to have both. That's really important. And I think sadly, a lot of watch brands rely certainly in the more mass market, rely on just going a great heritage, a great story, you know, that will be enough. I tell you what, every morning I spend one hour reading watch reviews. And every week we have a team call where everyone in the company would jump on a big call. Um, so all the full-timers, the part-timers, and even the, 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 the consultants, freelancers, everyone on the call. And at the end of the updates from the team, 
everyone has five minutes to talk about a watch that came out the previous week that they liked. You know, a new launch, a new release. Just, just talk about it. What, what, what made you pick it? What made you, you, you get excited? The problem I find is maybe working for, and, and, and having the ability to make my own watches, but increasingly there are very few watches that really catch my eye and float my boat. You know, I'm obviously going to be highly critical of, of, of what other people are making, but you realize like actually a lot of stuff being produced, it's being produced to tick a box. It's not being, or to fill mm -hmm. a display cabinet. It's, I, I think there's always got to be a reason, you know, if we bring out a new dial color, we make a song and dance about it because if we're not, if there's no reason to, there's no reason for it to exist in the catalog. And I think that's my my sort of worry with the market is, you know, we're, we're, we're back in a booming period, which is wonderful. And it's bringing more and more people into the watch world, which is fantastic. You know, the fact that, you know, a week goes, doesn't go by when I don't have an old school friend messaging me going, oh, I'm thinking of buying a nice watch. What would you recommend? You know, and I think that's wonderful. I love it. I love sharing that excitement because when I was a very geeky teenager, buying a watch magazine, which were on the top shelf in the newsagent next to the pornos, you know, because no one was into watches. There was no Houdinki, there were no YouTube. It, it was very niche. But so, so that's good. But I, I just worry sometimes that too many parts of the industry are just assuming that they can just churn out products. And I think we live in a world where sustainability isn't just about environmental. It's about making stuff that actually has a right to exist. I, I could not agree with you more. And, and as somebody on this side who gets to see, you know, who's buying what and what's actually selling and, and having, you know, I love watches personally. I have a pretty large collection, about 30 watches or so. And I have some watches that people would consider hype watches and whatnot, but I have a lot of watches that honestly I buy because I only, I like them myself. Right. And, and I, I encourage other people to buy those watches too. I mean, one of the reasons why I buy Garrick and I'm anybody who asked me about a new watch, I say, you know, and listen, I sell watches for a living, right? So I could certainly go, hey, go to my <laughs> website. We have the largest inventory. You know how many people I've been telling to buy Garrick's? In fact, uh, I think I have at least four or five people that I know who, who are in contact with David right now. Um, just because I'm, I, I'm obsessed with his watches. Um, and I'm obsessed with mine. I, I Stupidly, I should have worn my Norfolk today. By the way, which he told me, I hope it's the truth, is the last one off the line ever, which is, it makes it even more special. And that is probably the the, re, the the main reason why I would never, ever even sell that watch, right? Because at one point you, and, and that's another thing with watches is that um, I think the, this these days, you know, I, I have a lot of people who have been collecting for a long time um, who I talk to. And, and at first it was just buying watches and, and, and amassing a collection. Now it's in the way I look at collecting is I'll buy a watch. Um, I'll have as many great experiences as possible with that watch, but there's always going to be another watch that I want to wear. And I don't want to have that watch just sit in a watch box so that it's not worn by anybody because if it was made by humans, I want it to also be worn by humans yeah. always. Right. So that's, you know, there's, there's, I have an experience. So for example, I was talking to Asher about this, um, about how my collecting experience, for example, the watch that I was wearing the day my daughter was born, I don't own this watch anymore. And some people might, might think that that's like, disgusting and how could you sell that watch and i go well I, I had the experience with that watch right i remember that watch and every time i see anyone wearing that watch i'll remember that yeah. as the watch i was wearing with my but it's not so important that it was that i that i own the actual watch 
right? It was an experience I had with that one. It, it, not everybody believes in that way. And, and, my, and honestly, I might change my mind in the future in terms of, um, of collecting that way. But to bring it back to what you said, you know, there's, there's a reason you need to have a reason for these watches to live because like they truly are living, right? Like these are not, it's not electronics where they're mass produced by robots, right? For robots yeah, yeah. or, you know, like these are, it's, it's mechanical art made by humans for the most part. I mean, there certainly are watches that are made mostly by, by machine, but um, you know, made, made by humans for humans. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of overlooked in a lot of ways. And, and these days, all these watches are essentially luxury pieces, right? Like um, it, there's no reason to own them, like you said, right? So nobody needs these watches. And and what I like to think is that every time I sell a watch, um, even if it's not specifically viewed that way, it's a celebration of success, right? Very, and, and I have talked to people who say like, oh, my goal is to own a Rolex. But I, and, and I try to explain, I go, listen, it's, you're not, your goal is not to own a Rolex. Your goal is to achieve something and commemorate it by owning a Rolex. Right. It's that's really what's happening. Right. Uh, being able to afford to spend that kind of money, maybe that and that's usually the first purchase. Like, oh, you know, I can afford to buy this. this is why I bought it. And then after that, you get to a point where, well, I can afford to buy a lot of these. So I'm now I'm looking for other reasons to celebrate my success. And that's that's one of the reasons why I buy watches. It's the reason why I'm going to buy a, a Fears watch uh, is to, you know, I'll find a reason to celebrate and I'll make that purchase. And, and my, I might not own it forever. But I'll, I will absolutely treasure the time that I own it, and I'll think back to, oh, that was when I owned my, that was when I was wearing my Fears watch, or that was when I was wearing my Garrick watch, you know, and 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 that's something that I think is overlooked by a lot of watch brands, um, and and I think it's the opposite also. There's a lot of watch manufacturers that make unbelievable watches. Like I love Parmesan, oh, yes. yeah. As as my <laughs> my friend Mike Manjos calls them, cheese watches. <laughs> um, it, but you know, uh, and. And I think they're they're unbelievably well made, but there's not a great story there, or, or the marketing is not there. They're not explaining this to everybody. They're not shouting, "Hey, listen, this is these are why I'm making these watches." Um, and I think that making sure that from a from a you know a, a CEO standpoint, understanding that we have to make great watches that are relevant, but we also have to tell a story about these watches. We can't just say, "Well, obviously you should buy them. Look how great they are." You know, this is this is not a way to uh, to you know, connect with anyone to connect with your consumers. Absolutely. And it's interesting what you say about your, your Garrick. So my, with my Garrick, which is a, a piece unique, it's a complete, it's a one-off. And I, sure. I, I said to, said, I said to David, I said, I, I want to get one of your watches. You know, we've been friends long enough that, you know, and I, I've got, this was before the pandemic. I said, right, here's some money. I want a, a watch. And he said, well, you know, look, obviously you're going to want something custom. Or, 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 and I said, well, maybe I suppose. And he said, well, I tell you what, what if I make something for you? And I was like, you know what, actually that's the thing. Cause when you run a watch company, you're like, if I like the look of something, I can just call up my dial maker and my case maker and say, Hey, could you run off one of these for me? I mean, that's the ridiculously privileged position I'm in is sometimes you wake up on a Monday and go, you know what? I would love to see a watch with that color on it. Like, I really like that color. And within a couple of weeks, you're wearing a prototype, you know? So you, 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 I'm lucky to have that position. So for me, I was going, no, I don't want to design this. You know, I kind of said, look, I want it to feel very, it's got to be in, immediately recognizable as a Garrick to anyone who knows the brand. And in fact, my watch doesn't say Garrick anywhere on it. Because I always, because he remembered that when I first, uh, when I first met him, I said to him, a truly brilliant watch 
design and company should be identifiable when you remove the name off the dial. So you know what an, a Rolex Oyster looks like. You know, you've got the proportions, you've got the certain types of bracelets, you've got fluted bezels, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, one of my absolute all-time favorite brands, Laurent Ferrier, if you remove the name off the dial, and often they they print it in a ghost way that you can't see the name, but you know because of those assigned hands, you know the shape of the case, you know. And that's what I try to do with Fears, is why we use the same shape of hands on all our watches, and, and also we go for the same sort of elegant proportions. Well, I said to I said to David, I said, it needs to be the same. You know, I want that watch to be instantaneously recognizable as a Garrick, but I don't want it to say it on it. And he came up with something so perfect. What's good though is when people see it, they just go, oh, that's beautiful. I love it. But what I love is what they're not saying is, oh my goodness, I love it because of that incredible chapter ring that's laser cut, hand filed with a needle file, polished to perfection and then firmly blued and in an even way. No, they're not saying that. What they're saying is they like it because it looks good. And, you know, and I, that's the thing, you know, going back to my point about brand and product, like, you know, it's really important to remember, you know, these are things we've got to put on and wear. And I think, you know, it sounds very, uh, it sounds very arty of me to say this, but a watch has to have soul. You know, when you put it on and look at it, it's got to have something that draws you in. And I've, I've tried on a few watches that in the past I might've called a grail watch or things. And you put it on the wrist and you suddenly go, wow, actually it's cold. You know, it, it loses that, 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 that thing. Um, so one of the watches that people are often surprised that I say I absolutely love and would love to own one day is a 5711. And I'll, I'll, and I'll tell you why. I remember being 15 years old, walking down Bond Street. And as a, as a kid, I, I used to read How to Spend It from the Financial Times, you know, the magazine with all these beautiful brands. I used to read the first watch magazines that came out. I, I, I was quite mm -hmm. obsessed with brands and sort of luxury industry. And on my odd trip up to London, I, I would go down Bond Street and I'd go into like Patek, Rolex, Cartier, and I'd always have my story. My story was I'd always ham up my accent, make myself sound even posh and go, oh, my godfather's going to buy me a beautiful watch for my 18th. And he's told me to go out and pick one, you know, and and that was such a believable story back in the day. Like, you know, you'd have some wealthy godfather who would treat you some, you know. And so I would just go in and just spend like hours trying on. And in the window would be, well, which dial color would, are you more interested in? Would sir like to see the white or the blue? Oh, we'll get them both out for you to try on. And you go, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to nip next door and see what the Royal Oak, because, you know, it looks similar-ish and, you know, crazy days. This, you know, this is the crazy world that people nowadays would be like, what on earth? Like, A, 15-year-old trying on these watches, but also they were just in the window to buy. But the thing was, the reason I always loved the 5711 was I have tiny wrists and I loved how flat it sat on the wrist. And I also loved the fact that it was so outrageously ugly. It was so 70s. <laughs> it was so dated. It was just, you looked at it and everything else in the window was just elegant and it had these little sub dials doing things or a moon phase. And then you had this block of heavy looking steel with this really moody, unhappy looking blue dial, which would just look grayish blue and these very minimal mark. And the whole thing just looked ugly and angry and just miserable. 
And I kind of mm. loved it because of that. It was the ugly duckling in the window. And you just, I don't know, I've, I've always liked the mm. underdog. And it was the underdog in the collection. And oh yeah, for me, when I see one, I go to a red bar and someone has one and I'll put it on. And when I'm putting it on, I'm not thinking of the... Ooh, is this the actual final 5711 or is there another one? You know, I'm not putting it on thinking, oh, if I was to be lucky enough to buy this, I could flip it for X. I'm not putting it on thinking this is the watch that every single one of my 2,208 Instagram followers would go crazy for with the likes if I put it up on my my IG. No, I put it on and I'm that 15-year-old who is brazen enough to go into Patek and say, hey, let me try on that watch you know, and that feeling of going, yeah, it's ugly, but I kind of like it. I kind of connect to it. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, that's the thing that always reminds me about like that you are someone who actually does care properly about watches is that it's about how it makes you feel. You know, Rolex to me, I mentioned before, you know, I've mentioned a few times I used to work there and I was lucky enough to be able to buy watches while I was there with discount. And this is something your listeners will, will, they'll be screaming into their AirPods of this. We could buy any watch in the collection with discount. So I could have had a white dial mm-hmm. Daytona. I could have had any Submariner. And bear in mind, Submariners and GMTs were in the shop window at the time. Like, you know, but the Daytona yeah. wasn't. The Daytona, you know, it, it, that was always, always difficult. And, but you, I could buy it with discount now there was always an understanding that you wouldn't Mm -hmm. sell it for a certain number of years so you couldn't just buy it and and flip it did they make you engrave no no that's that's a standard i guess if you buy one through the 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 purchase the employee purchase program it's a substantial discount which i haven't even asked in the last four years but i'm sure they've ended this totally but one thing is my friend jason main who was uh who's my co-host on the youtube version of this show he bought i don't know i'm trying to remember what year it was it must have been 2017 2018 he got a white dial uh explorer 2 and they they had to inscribe it you have to have some sort of um uh uh, uh inscription in the back okay i'm going to sound awfully british here when i say basically it was more of a handshake and a gentleman's agreement that you would not do that. It was very, very it does sound awfully British. Oh, no, no, no. Of course I wouldn't do that, you know. Um, but but so what's the watch I buy? What's the watch that I save up desperately? I sell loads of other watches to buy. I go and buy a white gold day date. And why do... 36. 36? Why do I buy this? Mm. And I buy it because... The very first time I noticed a watch was I was eight years old and I noticed a yellow gold day date in an advert. And I remember two things at eight years old. One of them was thinking, why didn't every single watch have the date spelt out in that lovely sort of arc across the top? That just made so much sense from a design perspective. And the other thing was mm-hmm. on the Batten dials, you have the tiny little Roman numerals in the minute track. They don't on the the, mo- mm-hmm. the latest model, but they did have it. And, on the, and I used to always think that was such a clever way of incorporating Roman numerals in a very subtle manner. And so you then go, f- when I'm a teenager, I'm working at a jeweler's a, a weekend job while I'm at, at, at high school. And the lady who who worked there she was she was an older lady but she was very 
very stylish, you know, really classy lady. And she used to say that she always thought that the most, the epitome of class was a man who wore a white gold Rolex because it was stealth wealth. He knew he had the money, but it was like under the radar. And she thought that was so classy. And so when, you know, we've, you know, I've, I've spent years saving up my money to buy my grail watch. I'm at Rolex. I can buy it with a stonking great discount and I get to buy this watch. And Mm -hmm. it was, you know, that was all, it wasn't just the watch on my wrist. It was all of those feelings going back to that eight-year-old who at the weekend looked at his dad's newspaper and saw an advert. And I think it's those sort of feelings that you kind of, I I suppose sometimes it's difficult because, you know, we're men, we're not really meant to kind of delve too deep into our feelings about things. You know, the reason often people will say they love Mm -hmm. a vintage watch is because of the patina and because of the design and, oh, they made them better back then. I think deep down, one of the things that attracts people, certainly to vintage watches, is when you dive into it, you realize that most of these watches were someone's one watch. It's from an era where people owned a watch. They got it on their 21st and they had it for their entire life. So that one watch was mm-hmm. promotions at work, you know, births, deaths, celebrations, despairs. It was everything is encapsulated in that one watch. And I think deep down, most people, that's what they like. They they, they, they like holding yeah. it because they know they're holding someone's autobiography that they wore on their wrist. That's that's such an interesting perspective, and and it's funny that you say that because earlier today I was thinking about that. I had I had spoke to a customer who inherited a watch, and I thought to myself, you know, is my is my daughter or possible you know future son are they going to inherit any of these watches? Because I, you know, again, the way I collect is I, I don't I'm not buying things to keep them forever. I'm buying them for the experience and like remembering. Okay, this is this it's a, as a marker. So. And, and yeah, most people, especially, you know, and during these times, so like 50s, 60s, 70s, going into the eighties, you know, you, you would get, you would buy yourself a nice watch as a, as a, as a marker of some sort of, you know, uh, celebration of your success, but it was just one watch. It wasn't a collection of these watches and you'd wear it until your deathbed. And then, and then it, then it became end dad's up watch. With, oh, that was dad's watch or granddad's right. watch. You know, it, right, exactly. it stopped being one of his, yeah. And I suppose, you know, look. We're, we're, we're both in industries where we want people to own more and more watches, not less and less. But I yes, think yeah. there is that thing where, you know, my, my husband owns a, a Cartier. I bought it for him on our honeymoon in Paris, actually from the world's sure. first Cartier shop. So uh, the box comes with, it's got special packaging to commemorate the fact you buy a watch from that store, not any other store. So little oh, wow. collector's tip. Um, anyway, we, that's the only watch he wears day in, day out. Sadly, he doesn't wear a Fizz because he's like, no, I, I only need one watch. He's an academic. He's a professor of mathematics. And he wears his Cartier and he loves that Cartier. And there is always that feeling I kind of have, like he never lets me wear it. And he also won't let me buy any Cartiers for my personal collection. Because he's like, no, no, we have one Cartier in the household and it's mine. But you know what? It's funny oh. because people will always go like, oh yeah. You know, if say he takes it off, you know, we're round you know someone's and you go for a dip in the swimming pool something he puts the watch on the side and people are like oh that's chris's watch because everyone knows he wears this cartier tank and that's the only watch he wears and i always look on in envy a little bit of me is always like well no one's looking at my watch box Hmm. with my eight personal watches and you know you might be able to look at the garrett and go oh well that's that's one of nicholas's watches or but 
I don't know. There is always that bit of me which thinks, oh, you know, and maybe that's what I I strive to create is to create something that someone would go, maybe this is it. This is the one thing that I need to wear. I don't need anything else, you know? Hmm. Well, that's, I think that's something, that's one thing that is, uh, in my opinion, the downside of this boom that we're, that we're experiencing is that like, for example, Rolex for me, I can't keep a Rolex in my collection because they're too liquid. You know, the watch, like you buy a watch and, you know, one of the, it, it becomes too, um, it becomes too enticing to sell this watch. Whereas that's why I like my Panerai's because I like to buy watches that, I mean, I like to, I don't want to pay more than what it's worth, right? As a dealer, so what I do for a living. So I, I, I want to make sure I'm paying what it's worth, but I, I'd almost rather them not go up in value because I don't want an incentive to sell these things. So I buy Panerai's because nobody cares about Panerai. One of the reasons why I like, I love my Garrick and I, and I do tell people to buy them, but I'm almost a little nervous. I'm like, I don't want these things to be worth, you know, multiples of what I paid because I don't want, I don't want there to be an incentive for me to sell this in the future. And maybe that watch will be the watch that ends up being handed down or maybe a fears watch. But again, like uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what what does your production look like? Are, are you are you able to discuss that? Oh, like, how many watches do you make in a low hundreds like that? Low hundreds. So yeah, okay. we're, we're right. not so, talking about yeah. getting loads of watches out there. You know, sure. So I mean, and and in my opinion, you know, this is where the market is going towards in terms of collectability. So you know, I can see a, a point in which you know, uh, you know, uh, early fears watches are worth well, you know, multiples of their original retail. And it's, it's great because it shows success and it shows that there's that, that people really love these watches and there's, and, you know, there'll be a crowd around certain models and whatnot, um, which is great for you as a, as a, as a watchmaker. And it probably makes you feel great. If you see one of your watches selling at multiples of your retail, there should be a sense of pride, but also, you know, it's as, as an owner of the watch, it, it, it makes it tough. You know, I mean, I talked to a guy earlier today, who is selling a, a 15202 that he bought for $30,000. And he said at that point, it was a celebration of his success. And he felt comfortable you know, wearing that watch, but nothing more expensive than that. Now it's a $100,000 watch and, and he can't yeah. wear it anymore. So the love has been sucked out of it because he doesn't feel comfortable wearing that watch in Manhattan. You know, so it's, it, is, it, 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 it is a little bit of a, um, it, it leaves you conflicted, right? And that's where for me, I'm always going to buy watches that I, uh, if if I'm looking for value, it's less about how much I can sell it for in the future and more about, I don't want to have to spend more in the future for this watch. So that's kind of my mentality for, for becoming an early adopter of brands like Garrick or Fears or whatever it might be, because I don't want to have to spend or spend more money than I, than I have to, right? Because that, that money can be spent, you know, yeah. better ways for uh, my children or whatever it may be. But it does create a conflict. And I wonder how, when these things settle down a bit, when this watch boom that we're seeing here is, is over and say three to five years from now and things are kind of settled, you know, hopefully things will go back to normal where, where there's not going to be such a huge incentive to, to move things out of your collection as quick as possible and have more of an experience with each watch that you buy and kind of fall well, in love with. I mean, that makes me think back when the, uh, the stellar colored OPs came out from Rolex. So, I, because I, I mean, and by the way, that, that white gold day date, I sold it for a huge loss in 2016. So, you know, I, I've made no money on that whatsoever, but I needed to sell it for, sure. for funding fears. But 
because of my love of day dates historically, I always was knew about the Stellas, knew I'd never own own one, you know. Oh, so when those OPs came out, I thought 36, you know, with one of those dials, that would be a beautiful thing to own. And I was chatting to some of my my former colleagues, and they well, then one of them came back to me a few days later and he said, Look, you know, it seems as though you obviously did something right. They may honor you some kind of special price, you know, if you wanted one. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, could I go? And then I was like, oh, it's still thousands of pounds. And really, I can't justify putting money into that when I could be putting it into my mortgage or more realistically, putting more, you know, putting it into the business and, you know, developing something else. So I, I said to them, you know, thank you, but, you know, this is hard to say, no, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. I am so glad mm. I never said yes. I never went through with it because how on earth could I own? that watch and not sell it now like you i i just Friend. i couldn't do that you know it would be so difficult that if someone had you know managed to somehow get it you know and then you'd just be going how can i not and you know i i the other day i was listening to uh listening to your episode where you're talking about wait lists and you know, and I thought it was really, it was a really interesting way of explaining how much the market has changed. You know, I, I was talking about when I was a teenager and watches were in the windows and all, everything's changed. But, you know, talking about the thing mm -hmm. of going, you know, if someone buys a watch and flips it, you're kind of going, it's really difficult not to do that unless it's, unless it's your, the watch you've always wanted to own. When you know you can make, mm -hmm. you know, a few grand, five grand, you know, just why wouldn't you do it? Um, but it did also, mm -hmm. so, we had a watch that uh, we we had on wait list for a year in the end, and it was our Salmon Dial Brunswick. And from the moment that launched, Ooh. it sold out. And then we every time we made a new batch, it would have been pre-sold. And and it got to the point at one stage we had about 140 people on the wait list. And I made the decision straight off. There's only one way we're operating a wait list. It's an actual list on Excel. And when someone new gets on the list, they go on the bottom and they go on the bottom they go, and then we mm -hmm. just work our way through the wait list. And I remember where one list. of our best, uh, best customers, he owns, I think, eight, nine Modern Fears watches. And he said, you know what? I really fancy one. Like, you know, and I said, that's absolutely brilliant. You do realize your, your, your name will now be at the time 94th on the list. And he was like, that's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fine. I said, I'm really sorry. I just can't, even though you are an incredible customer who's put a lot of money in the business. I said, sure. I'm just old school. I just like the idea of fairness, you know, especially because, you know, look, if, if you're one of our best customers, what you don't get to jump the queue, but what you do get is say like my phone number. And if we're launching a new watch, you may get a, an, a WhatsApp photograph a few days before it comes out and you could, you know, go, oh, I like the look of that. Mm -hmm. You can be ready to buy it if you want to. But I, I, I don't know. I, I sure. just think there has to be something about fairness. And actually, I was, I was very interested to see when the new Royal Oak came out. Um, you know, every, everyone's going, you know, oh, it's, they've kept the size the same. The, the line I was most interested reading about was the fact that they were saying they're allocating a certain number of watches to the boutiques for newcomers to the brand. And I thought, that's interesting. Now, okay, how do we define a newcomer to the brand? But I thought, that's the first time I've seen a brand with a hype watch acknowledge that there has to be something done 
to encourage people to come in, whether it's, I mean, heaven knows how they'll do it. It will be some kind of lottery or something, but let's see, you know, because it's, don't get me wrong. There's obviously a wonderful trickle down effect. You know, you can't buy this. You know, I, I've got people who purchase fears and they've said, oh, I really want, you know, I've always wanted to get a Rolex this or a Rolex that. Couldn't get it at all. So I started looking at other brands. And that's where I was very fortunate sure. that fears crop, begins to crop up in people's consciousness. Right. right. Rise, exactly. But at the same time, you're thinking, mm-hmm. if you're someone who's always wanted to own a Submariner, say, because, you know, years ago when you started work, your boss had one and it's kind of in your head, you're like, that's the watch I always want. Yeah, you kind of you think own it, right? that person kind of should be able to just go into a shop, try it on and go, yes, after 40 years, I am buying this watch. Here's the money. And I, I know I uh, there'll be people right. again screaming at their AirPods going, like, oh my goodness, how idealistic, how like rose tinted glasses this guy. You know, I get, you know, it, it's a market. It's, it's the world we live in today. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think that three to five year plateau time, you know, it'll be interesting to see. And I don't think it will be a bad time. You know, I think... You know, I, I think it'll be very exciting to see what happens. Well, I appreciate you setting that as a standard for your company. And I think that if if that had been set 10, 15, 20 years ago, that this is how things are going, then I think things would be different now. That if there was truly a first come, first, first serve wait list, but, you know, I guess that's that, that boat has sailed. Um, and I appreciate that, that you have set that standard for fear. So is that... All of your watches. This is this is the way it goes. And so, do you have do you make numbered like special editions, limited editions? Like we're only making a hundred of these. And and how how do you handle something like that then? Because you see what happens yeah. with Ming, right? And they're getting trashed everywhere because you know that, that. And there's there's a lot of issues with these with with these types of waitlist. There's there's no, no great way to handle it in my opinion. So you know people who who just go online and bash them. I mean, well, you and I are of the same generation. We were kind of the first people really online. Um, and you know, I think that a lot of the people now forget the first rule of the internet, which is don't feed the trolls. The full, the trolls are overfed. They, they, I mean, the trolls are running the world right now, unfortunately, but, um, but also, you know, people just are looking to criticize. So, you know, I, I look at it like, Hey, listen, there's, there's no easy answer here and there's no way to make everybody I think happy. They, so, well, so you, you're absolutely right. And also to add on about in the UK, they actually have a name for our exact generation. So basically, people in their sort of mid thirties, they call us Spice Girls generation. Mm-hmm. So basically, the uh-huh. idea is we are we're old enough that we had what most people would call a traditional upbringing. Like we were taught how to write handwrite mm-hmm. a thank you letter after Christmas, and you know those sort of traditional right. skills. But we're also young enough that by the time we finished high school. You know, we were on MSN Messenger. We had a MySpace account. Like, you know, the internet was something we just used and consumed easily. So we're in that weird mix between the two. Um, so we, sure. okay, so we had a watch launch early last year, about a year ago, um, and we made five of them. And that was because the dial was mm-hmm. particularly difficult to make. And the dial maker made 10 dials and then said, we're not making any more. It's, we're, the, the failure rate's too high. We're not making any money making these dials for you. So fine. So I said, right, well, we've got 10 dials. So we've got five watches and five spares. So we made a limited edition numbered. You know, All of our watches carry a unique serial number. Um, but mm-hmm. on top of that, we put on the case back like one of five, two of five. Anyway. But then you go, well, how 
do we allocate them? How do we sell them? You know? And so I said, fine, you know what we'll yeah. do? We'll launch the watch at 9am. We'll show the watch to the world at 9am. That's when the embargo releases and we do it. What we will do though, is we won't open the sales for them until 3pm, which means we have six hours for most people who might be interested to read the articles, look at the photographs. I did two Instagram live sessions. So we had loads of people piling in, asking quite like, can I see it at this angle? And like, literally live showing the watch. You know? So it meant that when things opened at free, everyone's questions were answered. Everyone knew what they wanted. And it, it meant that they removed, you know, that sort of hype FOMO of, I've got to just buy it. Like, you know, the, the moment it goes on the site, I've just got to buy it. Because okay. at that point, quite a few people were going, I absolutely love it. But you know what? I think it's maybe not quite for me. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they, those people were able to kind of, you know, take a step back and other people. And that meant that, yeah. Okay, so those five watches sold out in two minutes. And we had about, I think it ended up being about 40 odd people trying to buy it at the same time. But they're, they're, what I felt pleased with at the end of it was there didn't seem to be much negativity around it. It seemed as though people were kind of like, yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of just a jump in and it was kind of how quickly could you, uh, how quickly could you purchase it? Well, how good was your Wi-Fi and all that? But I think the idea of mm-hmm. saying to people, no, like we're going to be upfront. This is what it is. And we'll give you a, you know, give you time to do it. But I, I, I don't think there's a perfect way. I mean, Unless you do a no, raffle, right. literally a raffle where you're putting names in a, you know, putting numbers in a hat and you just pull out the, the numbers, um, you know, maybe. Well, people will still call shenanigans and they'll still be upset. And well, so here's a follow up question there. So as an owner of a brand, um, so how much that uh, the you made five watches? Uh, it was, was three thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds sterling. Okay, so. Imagine, and I, I I don't know which watch this is, so I don't know if it, this has already happened or not, but imagine the next day after the watch was delivered, you saw it online on eBay for $10,000. Uh, like, what, how are you feeling? And what do you, is there, is, is that something that you feel like you can control? Do you ignore it? It's what an interesting do? question because that hasn't happened because the five, the, and in, yeah, yes. but interestingly, um, yeah the five owners of that particular piece between themselves have found out who each of each other are. And I believe they've met up once all of them with their watch, which for me, I love that, that they've kind of come together because of owning this, this rare piece, but no, right back to your question. I, so, I mean, initially you're sort of seeing it and as a brand owner, you're going, Oh, wow, that's incredible. My, my, the value of the watch is, is, is gone up. That's obviously a, a, you know, that's a very, it makes you feel very honored, you know, um, to see that. But mm-hmm. if you know that there was someone else outside of those five who was sad and disappointed they didn't get it, there was that feeling of going like, seriously, like, you know, that shouldn't be doing. But, and this is where, like, I think my economics obsession and background comes in, you know, <laughs> I am kind of a, a, a laissez-faire free market capitalist. You've bought it. You've paid for it. It's your watch. I don't necessarily want you to do that, but you own the watch. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I, I, I can't suddenly say to you, 
oh well therefore and i think there's several things you know there's then the question of well can you say some you'll never sell them a watch again it's really right. difficult because you know that's where you end up feeding the flippers and feeding it if you if you say look i'm it, it, you own it i'm not doing but i know in so in the uk we had a big thing a few years ago of um ad's with rolex um and some tudors you know they would remove all the stickers and they would hold on to the guarantee card for like a year or two years and mm-hmm. there was something that just didn't sit right with me about that there was something and then you know we've also had it in the uk where someone's bought a a rolex and then then flipped it and both the dealer and the person the individual will get contacted going straight away like we've noticed that this watch has been sold and and you're just rolex shuts down dealers over this i mean they have done in the u.s like i i know firsthand that this has happened dealers have lost their their business and this is where from from our from the dealer side of, of Rolex specifically, you know, we have to if we did first come, first serve, we'd probably be out of business in a week because the watch would get flipped immediately if we don't know who the customer is. So the only way to vet a customer that way is to sit look at their history. All right, are they only buying watches that are worth, you know, what they paid or more? No, okay. So they seem like a real watch. Like, like there's yeah. no easy way to do it. Um, so it's it, it seems like it's a problem that can't be solved by manufacturers or dealers and like do you do you go at do you do you if you find out who's who flipped your watch so if that's the scenario do you shut them down i mean hey thank you so much for you know helping me grow my brand equity because that's gonna that's gonna be free advertising for me and everything but like you said if there if the watch sells for three and uh through retail and it goes for resale within a week at 10 then that mean that guarantees that there was somebody who missed out on it who wanted to pay the three like that's that's what that means so it's it, it's an interesting problem to have as a brand owner and you know I, I see it from our perspective and i i'm always straightforward with my clients i never say oh yeah just give me your name i'll give you a call in four years like it's never it, it, lying to people is, is the wrong move here but you know it's 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 a problem that I don't know. It can only really be solved. I don't know if it can. No, be there isn't. No, there isn't a. There isn't yet a perfect scenario. There will be some probably clever professor, some university who's analysing this and will work out a way that you just think, why didn't we think of that? You know, um, but right now there, right, there, there, there just isn't. And I, yeah, I, I, I think, I think. Right. I, I mean, Weird, right? there is that there, it comes down to the thing of like property ownership. Like if you own something, you, you know, you, you should be free to do what you want to do with it. Um, demand is what commands these prices, you know? So there is that side, you know, if, if you pay for it, you're helping to fuel that, that as well. But of course, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that that, that helps yeah. with your business. You know, you need people to be, to be able to do that. But um, yeah, there's, right. I mean, one thing we've, I decided from day one we would do with Fears is, which was quite unusual for a new watch company. Because yes, we've got the heritage, but you know, we're new into into the scene. Um is to do no sales, no discounts, no bargaining. You know, so I always joke like, you know, my personal watches, I pay full price for them. Um even my mum, who bought one of my the watches from from my company, and and she's the one in the Fear family. That that's why I don't have Fear as my surname. Um, her watch, she paid full price for it. Um, 
but I think it's about realizing from the beginning how how you set the tone and you know like anyone who has a business plan I think about what I'm doing this year the next five years but unusual for a lot of businesses I think about the next 50 years and for me the next 50 years is very important because the previous two managing directors ran fears for 50 years they retired in their 80s you know that that puts you know 50 years is going to put me in my 80s and it's going okay I don't know what the world will be like then but I know what kind of company I want to be running and that's you know going actually things like the wait list it's going if something looks like it could be you know a quick win today I'm always suspicious of the quick wins I don't know I think if something yeah. is easy I think it shows you're probably not trying hard enough there's a more difficult but better salute better thing and it sounds a bit like you know there I am wearing the uh you know the wool shirt and beating myself on the back but actually I think it depends what kind of business you want to create and for me it's going actually where fears is today and where it is in 50 years time you know the 50-year vision for the company has nothing to do with watches it's to be the epitome of um the british epitome of good capitalism and that means paying suppliers having a sustainable supplier network i.e by going to a dial maker in germany yes it's more expensive but we can guarantee that everyone who works on that dial on a fears watch is paid a proper salary holiday pay sick pay a pension to me that matters that matters because you know the next time someone buys a watch that is you know oh it's amazing it you know it's got this amazing movement and it only cost x number of bucks yeah you're not paying for it but someone else is and i just think you know right. there is a thing of going yes fine look fears watches are in in you know in in the 3 to 5000 uh pound price point we do have a watch of uh, at 30000 pounds as well in solid platinum so we you know i'm aware we don't make watches that are uh, accessible to a lot of people but it's saying well actually when you're buying the watch you know that you're supporting crafts people in a huge variety of industries i mean the thing i always say is you know our watch straps we work with seven suppliers to make one watch strap and all of those suppliers are in the uk wow. or in western europe but for me it means you it's about doing things properly rather than doing things easily or cheaper anyone can do that but i think going to your very first question well, about how being you know in your mid 30s in this industry affects and i would say that's the thing because how my company is in 50 years time when i handed on to the fifth managing director i will be living in that world and you know without i don't want to sound doom and gloom because i am an optimist at heart but like you know if you just go for the quick easy wins that world you and i are living in in 50 years time is not a very happy place but the decisions we make today the standards we hold ourselves up to and our businesses up to by making those difficult decisions those tough decisions to do things properly results i hope in a fears thriving and doing well in 50 years but also you and i you know the world for your daughter is being a better place so yeah i think that's the big difference is our future vision we will be living you know we will naturally be living longer for that 
Oh man, someone's gonna clip this and put it in front, of, like as an inspirational uh, YouTube video. I love that, man. Well, that's fantastic. Listen, we're going an hour and thirty minutes. I feel like you and I could go for another two hours. Maybe we'll do another interview because I think there's a lot of things, a lot of questions that I have still that I like to talk to you about. As you know, uh, uh, the managing director of a of a family watch brand, um, I want to say to sum up what you just said. Uh, it it just keeps ringing true. My grandmother, who's from uh, who was from communist Russia, escaped in seventy nine, came to America. Very hardworking woman. She uh, one thing that she instilled in me when I was a little kid. It's one saying that she's always said because I always love I like sayings. This is, I'm a very corny individual. Nothing worth doing is easy, and it's it, it, and it and it can be looked at so many different ways, but it, it fits especially with what you just said there. And I think that you know if if we have if if people in our generation have that as their mindset. Whether you are the cog in the machine, you know, working for a company or start creating your own company or, you know, in, in embarking on any type of, you know, endeavor, nothing worth doing is easy. I think it's like a, it's, it's a great saying to live by. And right. it sounds I like you're already that, doing that. that. That line sums it up perfectly. I like that. I'm going to have to write that one down. She, she was a wise woman. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Yes. Yes. Luckily. Um, so, all right. Well, fantastic. Again, this, this was by the far, by far the longest podcast I've recorded. So I really appreciate you taking your time and uh, again, staying up late and talking with me. Um, well, we're going to have to do a part two and a part three, I think. Um, hopefully next time I'll have a fierce watch on my wrist. I've been scoping your website and looking around. So, uh, you and I will engage on that and figure out which one is the best for me to, uh, to buy at, <laughs> at a large discount. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, listen, if you're listening still, uh, you're a champion and we love you. Um, and uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, Nicholas, wh why don't you uh, let the viewers know how to get in touch? Certainly. With so your keep it nice and simple. The website is fearswatchers.com. Uh, our Instagram account is at fearswatchers. And if you want to see behind the scenes of running a watch company, uh, then follow me. I'm uh, at Nicholas Bowman Scargill. Um, I'm slightly slow at replying to my messages because I get about 50 messages every day. But if you have a question, not just about fears, but about running a company or anything, you know, find me on Instagram and, and send me a DM. Fantastic, guys. And like always, you can find me on Instagram at Mr. Thanos. You can send me a direct email uh, jthanos at thewatchbox.com. If you want to buy or sell a watch, uh, reach out to me, except Frieders watches. We don't have any of those. And if you want to buy one, please contact Nicholas. Don't pay over list. Don't feed the, the beast. Just buy it direct. Get your name on the waiting list. Um, guys, if you're listening to this, please subscribe and uh, subscribe to this, uh, to our podcast. It helps us tremendously. Um, if you if you think you have an interesting topic to discuss and want to want to uh, join me on the podcast, please reach out as well. We are looking for more guests. Uh, my next guest should be my buddy uh, David Braceford, uh, who's um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the owner of uh, of Garrick Watches or the the co founder of Garrick Watches. So we'll have another Brit on the next episode. And uh, well, thanks for listening, and see you next time. Bye.